There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. When does the Bible teach that followers of Jesus enter the kingdom of God? Does it happen when they experience being born again? Or does it happen at death when they depart from this world? Or does it happen when Jesus returns and the resurrection of the dead and translation of living believers takes place? The reason I ask that question is that there are supporting scriptures for each one of those three views. And we've got to properly interpret those scriptures to blend them together into one harmonious and homogenous whole. And that's what I intend to do on this episode of Revealing the True Light. It's a very important episode because some of these scriptures can be confusing to people if they pull them out of context or if they don't compare them to the other scriptures that deal with the same subject. That's how you properly interpret the Word of God. You have to take all the scriptures that apply to one particular subject and then weave them together and you come out with the proper interpretation or exegesis is the word that is used. Now, what awakened this in me or what inspired me to do this episode was a comment that I got on our comparative religion website, thetruelight.net. And someone who went there and listened to a previous podcast on soul sleep. And the title of that podcast is Soul Sleep, Fact or Fiction. And I believe that Soul sleep is not a true doctrine, not a right interpretation of Scripture. And to really get a good foundation for this episode, you should also go back and listen to that episode, and then you can blend them both together. But anyway, someone had listened to that and responded with a comment. I have not yet posted the comment. I'm going to do it probably later tonight because I wanted a proper and full answer to be able to present to this person, a response that was suitable. And she said this, her name is Anne, I won't give her last name, but Anne said this, what about these scriptures which show that no one will enter the kingdom of God until after Christ comes back? And then she lists three different passages. She says, what about these scriptures which show that no one will enter the kingdom of God until Christ comes back. And then she gives two parables out of Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and the goats. And then she also quotes that famous, well-known passage from John chapter 14, where Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In my Father's house are many mansions, or other translations say many dwelling places or many rooms. If it were not so, 
I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So she gave those three instances. And when you take them face value, and we're going to do that as we proceed, it almost does sound like no one enters the kingdom until after the second return of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the return, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his return at the end of this age. So what is the truth? How do we break it down? Well, first, I've got to determine uh, whether or not a person who is born again enters the kingdom of God, because that's one of the three options. Uh, scripturally, there's passages that support the idea that when you are born again, you enter the kingdom right then. And John chapter 3, verse 3, and verse 7 are two of the passages where that phrase is found. There's only three in Scripture where you see the phrase born again. And the other one is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. So let me go over those three occurrences of that concept. A man named Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, Master, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. And Jesus answered, instead of responding to what he said about Jesus' claim to be in the Messiah, he came at him with a totally different subject. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, if you read that with no bias about when this particular thing is fulfilled, you could interpret that to mean that you get born again now, and then you enter the kingdom of God later on when Jesus comes back again. However, I don't believe that's the proper interpretation of that scripture. When a person is born again, I believe at that moment, spiritually, not fully, not completely, certainly not physically, but spiritually, that person enters a spiritual kingdom. Because, well, the Bible makes it very clear that we're already living and dwelling in that kingdom and There's a scripture that proves that, Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Let me read it to you. Giving thanks to the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. That word meet is an old English word that means suitable, sufficient, or worthy. Giving thanks to the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has delivered us from the power of darkness, and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the remission of sins. That puts it in the past. 
that this experience of being brought into the kingdom of God has already happened. When I was washed in the blood of Jesus, when the Spirit of God came into me, I received Jesus into my heart. I was spiritually regenerated and positioned in the kingdom of God right then and there. Now, what's the third time when the phrase born again appears in Scripture? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 says, Since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again. Past tense, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So that precedes this experience of being born again. The word of God, the word of truth, the word that reveals who Jesus is, enters into the heart of a person. You respond to that word by faith, and the Holy Spirit, in response to your request, comes into your heart, and you're spiritually reborn by the word and by the spirit. It works together. And that moment, you enter into a kingdom and you become an heir of that kingdom. In fact, James chapter 2, verse 5 says, Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those that love him? Paul said the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's something you have right here, right now, if you've been born again. He pours his righteousness into you, his joy, and his peace. Now, how do I respond to this person, though, that thinks those two parables and Jesus' statement in John 14 reveal that no one enters the kingdom of God until Jesus Christ comes back again? How do I respond to that suitably? Because that person apparently believes in soul sleep. And I believe and loves the Lord. I believe she loves truth. I believe she's searching for truth in the word of God. And the most convincing scripture to me that reveals those who die are in a heavenly sphere with the Lord Jesus is found in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18. Instead of sleeping in the grave with the corpse or with the body of the person, the soul is consciously in a heavenly sphere. And besides, what about people that are, say, buried at sea and the body disintegrates into tiny little particles? Where would the soul be then, right, if soul sleep is correct? But anyway, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And again, as I mentioned on the previous podcast, I believe that was a softer way of dealing with the terribleness of death. We use certain phrases that kind of soften the blow of saying someone died. Instead, we say someone passed away or they went on to their reward. Well, I believe in Paul's day and in days prior to that, in Old Testament days, they had a way of talking about death that would soften 
the intensity of it, and they would say, well, he fell asleep. He went to sleep with his fathers. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, listen now, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Wow. It did not say God will awaken them in the grave where they're at. It said God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God or the shofar of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. So, in this passage of Scripture, it's talking about first the translation of living believer. Well, rather, first the resurrection of the dead. And then second, the translation of living believers. But in order for the dead to be raised, God has to bring with him those who are asleep in Jesus. Notice two things this passage does not say. It does not say that the souls of those who are in Christ are asleep in the grave, nor does it say that when Jesus returns, he will retrieve the souls of those who sleep in Jesus from the grave. I want to emphasize again, it says God will bring them with him. And so, of course, that's a reference to Jesus. He was God manifested in the flesh, and he's eternally the image of the invisible God. And when he comes back, those who sleep in Jesus will come back with him. Well, why, if they're already in a conscious state in a celestial world, do they even need a resurrected body? Some would say that doesn't even make sense, that that would be a necessary step in our spiritual evolution. If we're already functioning in a heavenly world, why is it necessary to get a resurrected body? Well, first of all, because Jesus had a resurrected body. And also because you have to have a body for the realm that you are ordained for. And see, a lot of people don't understand that our destiny is the new earth. We're not going to spend eternity just in a heavenly state. That's a temporary abode for God's people until the completion of the plan. Because the plan involves heaven coming back to earth, the world becoming gloriously delivered from the bondage of corruption and restored to pristine paradise peace again where the presence of God permeates the atmosphere of this world and everything is filled with goodness and righteousness and love dominating everything. See, when God brings this earth back to the status it should be occupying, you and I have got to have a glorified physical body to inhabit a glorious new physical world. That's why the resurrection is necessary. 
There are scriptures that talk about how we will dwell in the earth. For instance, in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, the 24 elders, who I believe are representative of all the redeemed of the Lord, are singing a new song saying, you are worthy, and they're singing to the Lamb of God, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. See, we're going to be in this world. Matthew 5, 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So this is going to be an abode forever. The kingdom of God is going to be set up here. New Jerusalem in the new earth will be the capital city of a new creation. It's all going to be phenomenal and it's all going to be wrought supernaturally. Now, can the soul function separate from the body? The fact that the soul can consciously function apart from the body is illustrated by the fact, by the fact that when Jesus died, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says that he was made alive by the Spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. So in between the crucifixion and the resurrection, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus went down into the lower parts of the earth and preached the gospel to the dead. So he was fully conscious and fully functioning in a spiritual state before he retrieved his body. He wasn't experiencing soul sleep, where his soul remained in the tomb with him. There's also another somewhat questionable source, and I say somewhat questionable because there's differences of opinion on this, but when Saul went to the witch at Endor, who had a familiar spirit and tried to contact the dead, necromancy is what the Bible calls it, uh, he disguised himself because as king, he had outlawed this practice in Israel. But now he's wanting to contact Samuel because he's in terrible straits spiritually. He's fallen away from God. And so he goes to this woman with this familiar spirit, and she goes through her normal process of putting on like she's contacting someone who's dead. And it actually happens, and it shocks her. And the very fact that she is shocked by the appearance of Samuel speaks to my heart that God allowed it to happen, actually. And so Samuel communicated to Saul, either directly or through the woman who had the familiar spirit. I don't know if he spoke to her and she transferred the information to Saul. But anyway, Samuel said, to Saul, tomorrow about this time, you and your sons will be with me where I am. He didn't say you'll be in the grave with your bodies and your soul will be asleep. He said, you will be with me where I am. And that was talking about the lower world, right? Okay, let's go to the three scriptures. I've got a little bit of time. Let's go to the three scriptures that this woman presented as proof that no one will enter the kingdom of God until 
Jesus comes back again, and until then, souls will be asleep in the grave. I can't go in detail, so I urge you to read these passages yourself so that you can really ponder the depth of meaning in each one. First, the parable of the talents, and that's found in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. It's a very long parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each one according to his own ability. And immediately he went on his journey. Now, when he gave the parable, a parable is a representative story, a metaphorical, symbolic, poetical story illustrating a truth. It doesn't establish truth, it illustrates truth. And the word parable means alongside, to throw alongside the truth, to illustrate it, to make it more colorful and understandable. And so the man traveling into a far country, of course, is Jesus, who ascended back up into heaven. And he gives all of his followers certain talents or gifts. And a talent was actually a piece of gold worth a certain amount in that day. Or you could have a talent of silver. It was actually representative of the weight of that precious metal. And so the one with five talents invested, did entrepreneurial work or whatever. And when this man came back, uh, he found out that he'd multiplied five more talents from the five that he'd received. And so he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Hmm. Enter into the joy of the Lord, the joy of your Lord. And so the woman who commented said, it's very plain there that he doesn't enter into the joy of the Lord until after the return of the one who went away and after the completion of the earthly purpose of this one that received five talents. So it happens at the end at the coming of Christ. Well, my response to that would be this. I have the joy of the Lord now. The Bible says in his presence is fullness of joy. That's right here, right now. But I guarantee you, when I have a glorified body, when I'm changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and I am shining like the sun in the kingdom of my Father, in a perfected kingdom, and everything is absolutely perfect, my joy will intensify exponentially. In fact, I believe the joy I experience then will be far greater than the joy I have now. Now I can only handle a certain limited degree in these human forms. We can only handle so much, but in a glorified form, it will be perfected. And so we pass from glory to glory. And so just the fact that the servants who multiplied their talents entered into the joy of their Lord after his return doesn't mean you can't have joy now. It just means they'll enter into the full, complete joy of the Lord at his coming. Next, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Again, you need to read the whole parable. It's Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It starts when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels. With him he will sit on the throne of his glory. All nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. 
And he will say to the sheep on his right hand, or he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then he shall say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to give them certain praises over certain things they've done. So the point this person made when she commented on my previous podcast was, look, that scripture says that they will enter the kingdom after he comes back. Well, I believe that's when the kingdom is fully manifested in this world. See, it's not fully manifested in this world yet. It's invisible now, internalized in those who have been born again. We experience the kingdom, but the people of the world don't see it. Jesus said the kingdom of God comes not with observation. You're not going to be able to watch it take over one city at a time, in other words. He said, but when it comes, it'll be like lightning shining from the east to the west. It will be glorious when the king of kings descends and when the Bible says the light of the sun will be like the light of seven days. Can you imagine the radiance, the brilliance of the coming of the Lord when the kingdom swallows up all the darkness that's in this world, purges the evil and the wickedness out of this world? That's the kingdom he's talking about. A kingdom that will be restored on this planet fully where Jesus is the king of that kingdom There'll be no democracy. There'll be no socialist uh, country. There'll be no communistic country. There'll be no dictatorships. It will be a theocracy. The king will rule and reign, and the kingdom will be manifested in its perfection and beauty. Hallelujah. And so, yes, uh, that will happen. Uh, We'll enter into that kingdom in its fullness then, but we can enter into it partially or with less of an intense manifestation now in a spiritual sense. And then finally, she brought out John chapter 14. And this is somewhat of a challenging passage to blend in with everything I've said this far, but not impossible. Listen to what Jesus said. John chapter 14, verses 1, 2, and 3. And I love this passage of Scripture. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, first let me inject, and I've done a podcast on this before, I don't believe mansions is the proper interpretation of the Greek word mone, which only appears twice in the New Testament. It should be dwelling places or or rooms. Uh, In my father's house are many dwelling places, is the more perfect way of saying it. But anyway, that's not the subject matter. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I know some wealthy people that have homes in two or three places. Just because Jesus goes to prepare a place for us in heaven doesn't mean that's the permanent abode for the children of God. In the interim called the New Covenant era, yeah, 
those who die go on to a heavenly place. And at death, he comes and ushers them from this world into the next. Oh, yes. They don't sleep in the grave. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. Listen to what Paul said. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It wouldn't be gain to be asleep in the grave. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul makes it clear if he died, he would depart and be with Christ. Well, why did Jesus say, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself? Because I guarantee you, when Paul died, Jesus was there to receive him. And I believe at the second coming in a corporate sense, he will receive all of those who are still alive in the world and all of those who are resurrected from the dead unto himself and wherever he is, whether it's in the celestial world or when he sets up his kingdom in this world, we will be with him. And so I can see John 14 verses 1 through 3 very clearly as fitting into this harmonious, homogenous whole to understand these scriptures and to realize that all three are true. That as soon as you're born again, you enter the kingdom of God. When you die, in a more manifest and powerful sense, you enter the kingdom of God. And when Jesus comes back again, in the most powerful sense, we will all enter the perfection of what that kingdom is going to become. That's my answer, and I hope it's been beneficial to you. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.